everybody. It is time for Apollo Swattered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And before we get into our show, I want to let you know about our first ever Apollo Swattered Weekend Men's Retreat. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, where we will open the Word of God and talk about how we might thrive in Babylon. Our world is fallen, and over the last few decades, we've seen a massive shift in how Christianity is being expressed in the world. How do we live in such a world? How do we follow Jesus when everywhere we turn seems to be against our message? How do we be faithful in a world that seems to tempt us at every turn? That is what we are going to be talking about. So join me on Friday, February 19th, 2021 to Sunday, February 21st, 2021. And our theme is Thriving in Babylon. You can sign up on Phantom Ranch's website, phantomranch.org slash events. And today's show is brought to you by our awesome sponsor, Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you are looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then Kathy is the person you need to call and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy is trustworthy and cares about her clients. I know, and I can say this because I am one of them. She is my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. For those of us who have grown up in the United States or who are new to the United States, there is a Latin phrase that has been used to capture the essence of what it means to be an American. It is the unofficial motto, and it is E Pluribus Unum, and it's translated as out of the many, one. The idea of the United States is it's really this great experiment. That's what it was called by many of our founding fathers and was captured in those 13 letters, E Pluribus Unum. At the time, the United States was only 13 colonies. And out of the many colonies, one nation emerged. It's a great motto and captures who we are, but it even better captures who we are as a body of Christ. It's much more relevant to the body of Christ than it ever could be to a country because it is out of the diverse body of people, all of the tribes and tongues of the world, that we come together as one people of God, united in a fellowship of the Holy Spirit, a unity better than any geography or government. A unity not based on skin color, tribe, tongue, or culture. A unity based on Christ and forged by his spirit. We are the fellowship of the spirit united together through his death and resurrection on the cross, made alive by his spirit, and as much as we are a new world order of the truest sense. 
But how does this happen? This isn't easy. This takes work. This isn't something that our world actually likes at all. I mean, they want to have their own type of unity united in their own philosophy and their own ideals. But as a body of Christians, we have to find what unites us together. And we can talk about that, but how do we do it? That's the the question. And I think in order for us to understand this, we have to go back to the word of God. Let's get back to the Bible. Because the Bible shows us how this fellowship was even brought together and how we can be sure that this fellowship will last. That's what we can see in our text for today. And how can we know that it is real? That's what we're going to look at today. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. So allow me to read this for us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Now, before we explain this fellowship, we need to get and understand the background in order to gain the full flavor of everything that is happening. The gods of the ancient world were localized. We, we have a tendency to forget that, but in the ancient world, they saw their gods localized or specialized. And here's what I mean by that. Either they were the gods of a certain geography or land, or part of that land, or they were specialty gods. They ruled perhaps the heavens or the seas, the god of the seas, the god of the sun, or events such as the god of war, the god of harvest, the god of childbirth, the god of travel, or things in our everyday world, reproduction, sex, love, health, etc. There was the Roman, Greek, and Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses, along with the Mesopotamian and Philistine pantheon as well. And there are, by the way, pantheons of gods and goddesses across almost every culture. Norse gods and goddesses, Hinduism has 335 million gods and goddesses in their pantheon. And there are the gods or elements in the Japanese Shinto religion. And then there are the various gods and goddesses in neo-paganism. And throughout Africa, there are various beliefs about God and spirits that often differ by region. Many Africans who practice traditional African religion believe in a primary god such as Chuku or Nayame or Olodumare or Nagai or Rug, etc. Or they may believe in one god or even two gods with one of the aforementioned gods along with the goddess Mawu. If there is a practice in one of the traditional religions of a region, there will be some form of polytheistic worship. 
and the belief that these gods or goddesses can be appeased or harnessed to do something for them, such as bless or prevent disaster. So don't think that polytheism is far away. For those who are in the West, I mean, we even see ourselves as gods and goddesses. According to some New Age movements and philosophies, you are a goddess. And we have a really hard time understanding these terms. But when we go back, we have to look at the world of the New Testament and how our author understood it. So gods then were associated with places and things, and the Christian God was something altogether different than the ancient world. We have to understand how crazy different that God, the one true God, is of the ancient world. Because there was no idol to worship or bow down to, but there was a temple that was to house his divine presence, whereby people could go to commune with God, offer sacrifice, and pray. It was envisioned by King David and then constructed by his son, King Solomon. The original temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. At the dedication of the temple, actually Solomon, who, who built it, I mean, when the original temple was, was actually constructed for that reason, to be a house of prayer for all nations. And, and it was at the dedication that Solomon prayed that it would be a place for God's name or where God's name would dwell, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 29. And, and it spread all through 1 Kings chapter 8. And that's where God's people could pray, 830, and receive judgments, 831 through 32. But primarily... It was for prayer. Solomon prophetically prayed that it would be a place where people could pray for forgiveness of sins. This is where you could access God back then and have forgiveness of sins, where you could ask for it. And if the nation of Israel lost in battle due to some sin and were moved from the land that they inhabited because of it, God would restore them if they came to the temple and prayed. 1 Kings 8, 33 through 34 or if drought came over the land because of sin, it was the temple they were to go to and pray, confessing and repenting of their sin, trusting in the promise that God would bring rain, 835 through 36. If there were some type of pest, famine or pestilence that came upon the land, then individuals or the nation as a whole could come and pray for God's intercession and he would act, 837 through 40. If a foreigner came to the temple, praying in search of the one true God, he would hear so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. 1 Kings 8.43 If the nation was going into battle and prayed to God for victory, he would grant it 8.44-45. And if the nation were to be removed from the land of Israel and were to go into captivity to a foreign land... And while in that land expressed remorse and repented, then they were to pray toward their homeland where God manifestly dwelt in his temple. And then he would hear from heaven, forgive them of their sin, and grant them favor in the sight of their captors. 846 through 55. So it's that backdrop whereby we come to our text for today. Pentecost have, has arrived. And that's the 50 days after the Passover, and they were all together in one place. And as we see in our text, there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house where they were sitting. 
And then one of the most fascinating and amazing thing happens in verse three, when divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested with each one of them. Now I want to pause for a moment and talk about these tongues of fire. Fire throughout the Bible refers to God's presence. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The Israelites were guided by a pillar of fire by night when they were leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, Exodus 13, 17 through 22 and 14, 24. And then the fire that came from heaven when Solomon was dedicating the temple that burnt up his sacrifice, 2 Chronicles 7, 1. Then there was the sacrifice that Elijah, the prophet, had made on Mount Carmel that was burnt up by fire from heaven, 1 Kings 18, 38. But here the Spirit of God comes to them, appearing as tongues of fire over each of them. And then in verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what is the point of all of that? There are a few things. Taking the temple explanation as a backdrop, a shift has occurred from a physical place as, it, as in the temple to his people. See, Acts 2 shows us that God is now residing in believers. Now, some people get so caught up in the tongues part of it, but let's, let's kind of put that aside for a moment, just for a moment. And the point is, is that God is now residing in his people. That's the point. God comes to dwell in those who believe in him. This is a profound thing and must not be overlooked. Men and women now become temples of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What does that mean? It means that God seeks to commune with you. Before this, most often, man had to go to the temple to commune with God. But now, God has set up his residence in his followers. Why is this important? Because before the Holy Spirit, we were incapable of doing that which God requires. We didn't have the strength or the ability or the skill. We have been slaves to sin and slaves to the powers of darkness, not having the strength to fully resist. But now, he gives us power. What does this power do? Paul talks a great deal of the Holy Spirit's power and lets us know that the same Holy Spirit is the spirit that the, I mean, is the spirit that gives us the power to help us live like Jesus. As we read in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the most powerful spirit in the universe. This is the power that Jesus told them to wait for. This was the power that would not come unless Jesus left them. And now this spirit was here. This spirit would bring about the life of Christ within them and would transform them completely. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the spirit that teaches us to say no to sin. 
and reorienting us away from our sin. This is the thing that many of of us have lost sight of. We think that our sin is not that bad, but the truth of the matter is we can't fight sin by ourselves. We need the Spirit of God to totally reorient us. One of the greatest passages in all of Scripture is actually found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And I would highly recommend memorizing this verse because it will come to you in your most deepest and darkest times. When we sin and we feel that God has forsaken us or that God doesn't want us or that God doesn't love us, we have to challenge that lie in our mind because God loves us with an everlasting love. The more that I study the love of God, the more amazed I am. That God is not angry with us all the time. That if you believe in him, that he loves you. He loved you while you were nothing, while you were still yet his enemy, while you were a spiritual terrorist. He loved you and he gave his son to die for you. And that's why when we read Romans chapter 8, it is a balm to our soul. And it reads like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what I'm talking about there. Let Let me wrap all of this up and put a bow on it. The spirit gives us the power and he is the one who produces change in us. That's what he's talking about. There is a massive shift that occurs, and it's the Spirit of God that does that. The Spirit, in this instance, was a one-time occurrence whereby they were changed and brought together. God was supernaturally showing that he was to be going to be present in his followers. He was changing them. That's why I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. There's been a massive shift that has occurred. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Notice the last part. These people were changed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. It is God's spirit coming into them and changing them, reorning them to do what he wants. That's what God does for you. He changes you from the inside out. You are not who you were. You are made a new creation, and we have to learn to live as new creatures, as a new creation, knowing that our old life has passed away, and God has totally reoriented us to himself, and we have to learn how to live in that and not believe the lies of the evil one, and and learn how to battle our flesh, the world, and the powers of darkness, because that three-headed dragon is coming at us each and every day, and we have to learn how to fight all three of those heads of the three-headed dragon. It's the Holy Spirit that produces change. It is God's Spirit coming into them, into you, and changing you from the inside out, reorienting us to want to do what God wants. Now, God gives us his power, but we must cultivate the Spirit's presence in our lives. We read in Romans 8, 12 through 17. I'm going back to Romans 8. It's such a powerful chapter. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't have to do what the flesh says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have to live according to the Spirit, not the flesh. And that means we are to be filled with the Spirit. And that happens, by the way, by doing spiritual things. Reading the Word of God, praying, singing praises to God, being quiet in solitude and meditating upon His Word, things like fasting, studying His Word, memorizing it, sharing God's Word. These are all spiritual things that help us to be filled with the Spirit of God, being together in worship, worshiping with God's people. We have to cultivate this Spirit and not live according to our fleshly desires that are fallen. We have to learn to die to them and then learn to live to the life that God has for us. Now, another thing that we see in this moment in Acts chapter 2, it brings out is a unification of languages rather than a division between them that God has brought about in Genesis 11. Now we're going to get into the tongues part, but we have to understand it in its context. See, if you remember the story from Genesis chapter 11, early in time, there was one language that everyone spoke. And man decided to make a big tower and a name for themselves that would be as great as God's. But when God saw what they were doing, trying to create a world really without him, he confused their languages so that they could not communicate with one another and then disperse them throughout the earth. Here, however, we see God intervening. And allowing them to communicate with one another, he is reversing Babel. That's what this is about. 
He is turning it around. Rather than them being divided anymore, he will allow them to come together as one. And let's look at the text in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance, gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? Notice that we have 120 speaking in tongues. And it was such a loud sound that Jews heard them, undoubtedly so. The text says that they were devout men from every nation under heaven. But at this sound, they came together and were bewildered at what they were hearing. What I want to draw attention to is verse 7, where they ask the question, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, this is striking because Galileans were considered uneducated and unsophisticated. It was a backwoods area, and they pronounced words funny. We have different accents in different parts of the world and where we hear people pronounce certain words differently than we are accustomed to, and they are funny. But here, they were speaking the languages of the nations perfectly. Why does God do that? Why does God use them? Because God is showing that he is using the ordinary to do something extraordinary. God has always been about using ordinary people like you and me, people that don't always have the great education or speak perfectly or who are good looking or who have great abilities. He uses everyday people like you and me. He wants to show his power, not ours. He uses us. Is he using you? What is keeping him from using you? Is it your disobedience? Are you distracted? Are you too busy? Or maybe you believe the lie that he cannot use you or you're not good enough. Don't believe that. That's a lie. We are not good enough in that we are not good enough to merit God's salvation, but we are valuable in his sight. We are worth more than you could ever, we could ever imagine or understand. And he gives himself for us because of his unsurpassing love for us. And in many ways, you're right. We won't ever be good enough, but we don't have to be. We just have to respond in love to him and allow him to use us. He uses everyday people like you and me. He wants to show his power, not ours. He uses us. That's the beautiful thing about it. He wants to do the extraordinary through the ordinary. That's what is amazing about the apostles. It's not that they were gifted, dynamic speakers, dressed the best, had nice clothes or lots of money. No. It's because they were loving Jesus and being obedient to him. You know, later in this series, we were going to be, we're going to be in Acts chapter four, where we see the boldness of Peter and John. And I love this passage, and I'm just going to forward a little bit now and peek in for a moment, because the Bible tells us that the religious leaders were astounded after they testified about Jesus to them. And I'll let Luke finish the description in Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. 
There were, they were 12 ordinary men and God was using them to change the world. And he's still doing the same today. That's what I love. When I hear stories about how people came to Jesus, it often wasn't because of some great evangelist or speaker or YouTube or Instagram celebrity. Nope. It was about grandma who kept praying. It was about a teacher. It was about a friend in class. It was about someone who cared enough to share. I love that. You know, Christianity is growing faster than the birth rate in places like Africa and Asia. But in America, it appears to be decreasing. Why? We all have theories, but I think it's because American churches have often professionalized the gospel and turned it into entertainment where everyone is clamoring for credit and acclaim. Whereas in many parts of the world, they have men who minister and who are willing to remain unknown so that God may be known. When we surrender our desires to him, our desire for fame, status, acclamation, then God will do what he does best, transform lives. What else can this passage teach us? Let's look at verse 8. And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. He is talking about Jews here who had been scattered over the known world in the diaspora and who came back to Jerusalem. There were actually three categories of Jews. Those who were born Jews, full, then there were full converts to Judaism who underwent the ritual of circumcision, and then there was a third category called God-fearers, those who believed and worshipped the one true God, but who did not get circumcised. Jews from all backgrounds wanted to make their way to Israel, and specifically Jerusalem. There were Jews who had been spread all over the world who spoke several different languages. And, and there's something similar going on today. When I was in Israel over 20 years ago, I saw Jews from South Africa, Russia, France. Their skin was actually all different colors too. And all of these Jews were coming back to the promised land to live. And there's a similar principle at today at work. There is a thing called Aliyah, whereby persons who are one quarter Jewish can come to live in Israel for free. The first part of the book of Acts is how the gospel spread among Jews all over the world. But the second part of the book is about how the gospel spread among the Gentiles. The gospel begins with Jews and then goes to Gentiles. A Gentile, by the way, are those who were born outside of the covenant community of God. As we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is another way, it's a synonym of Gentile. But what God is doing is a foretaste of what will happen later in the book, and that is that he is uniting us into one body. He has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is putting us together into one body that transcends geography, ethnicity, language, and everything else that could possibly divide us as humans. What does that mean? It means that we can't be racist, number one, and think that one group is better than another and that God's hand is, is upon our ethnicity over another. God is and has always been about the nations. It's been his mission since the beginning of time to reach all people groups. 
which is why we participate in missions, which is to say crossing cultural barriers for the sake of the gospel, something that we should all treasure. We are striving to be a multi-ethnic church. And that's not always easy. When you have people coming from so many different backgrounds, it makes it very hard. It's hard to communicate. It's hard to understand one another. It's hard to want a fellowship when it's awkward. We don't like being awkward when it comes to fellowship. But we have to work through that. It was hard in the early church. And it's hard today. But here's the good news is that Christ, through Christ, we can put aside our preferences. It is totally possible. And we also need to see that he is utilizing all of our languages for his glory. Look at verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Not one language is better than than another. Here, there were clearly different languages being uttered, and all who heard, heard them in their own language. There had to have been a common language for them to communicate in, and during that period, it was Greek. In our day, and English is actually one of the most universal languages for people to speak in. That being said, we can't just speak the the, the tongues of other languages whenever we want. Here, it is a divine, supernatural act that God was the author of. And today, while we pray for such a work, we continue working to see the scripture translated into every language in the world. We want to see the scriptures translated into every language, transforming cultures from the inside out. God wants his word to be known in the heart language of every every people group. I mean, the Bible has been translated into hundreds of languages, and the New Testament alone into, into almost like 1,500 languages. And Bible portions or stories into almost 1,200 languages. Now, when God does a work like this, there will be many reactions to the Spirit's work. Whenever the Spirit of God is at work in a body of believers or in a person, there will be many different reactions to him or her. Look at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The different reactions, I mean, as we look and examine them, we must ask ourselves, not how others see God at work, but how do we see God working? Some were amazed. How do we see him? These are some of the questions we must ask ourselves. Do we see God's work as marvelous? They were speaking in other tongues, but that that is not the only work of the Spirit. He convicts sin, causes such change that people repent of their sins, seek forgiveness from those who they have wronged. They seek to make restitution. Those who have Christ come into their lives often take radical steps to be made right with God. How do you respond? How do you respond when a spouse says they want to follow Jesus? Or when someone says to you, a good friend, that they say they want to quit their jobs and move overseas to be able to be used for the gospel to expand the kingdom of God. How do you respond when people want to talk about Jesus around the table? It's a marvelous thing when we see the Spirit at work in a person's life. They were amazed and they were perplexed, as the text says, which means that they were stupefied. They were totally at a loss at what it meant. I mean, do we see the Spirit's work as mystifying? 
Some want to find other reasons as to why they were speaking in other tongues, but they couldn't figure it out. They were questioning among themselves, what does this mean? They couldn't figure it out. And rather than embrace it, they questioned it. Why do you think, I mean, what do you think of God's work in someone's life? Do you believe that God can do the supernatural and speak truth and change a person? I do. Here's a third, though, response that can be seen in verse 13. We read, But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Is the Spirit's work marvelous, mystifying, or do they mock it? They didn't believe God could do such work, so they decided to make fun of it. Just think about the trolls online and all the different comments that people make. If you ever try to testify about God on any type of public forum, you are going to have a litany of responses. They didn't believe God could do such a work, so they decided to make fun of it. They had to find an alternative. Rather than marvel or be content with simply questioning it, they decided to mock God's work and attributed their speaking in tongues as them being drunk on the newest harvest wine. One of the greatest stories that I've ever heard of someone mocking God's work was during one of George Whitfield's sermons. George Whitfield was one of the greatest evangelists of the 18th century. He was British by birth, but came to America to preach the gospel. He was a phenomenal speaker and could draw crowds of 10,000 people from miles around and get this, without an amplification system. He was one of the first people to speak outside in that era. That sounds crazy, but back then, most people thought preaching could only be done indoors. He was extremely dramatic and fiery in his preaching, drawing a great deal of fans, actually such as Benjamin Franklin, the early American founding father, as well as his fair share of mockers. The story goes that there was a man on the side who was hearing Whitfield's message and was imitating Whitfield's message to his friend as they were getting a good laugh. He's doing total, I mean, he's imitating his voice and his mannerisms and everybody's laughing. But midway through the message, he repeated Whitfield's words and the spirit of God struck him hard. He fell on his knees, repented of his sins and received Jesus as the Lord and Savior of his life. We can't mock God. But we also have to realize, I mean, God is so much bigger than us. And no matter how we respond, God's still going to rule and he's still going to love. We can't mock God's work. And as soon as we do, God will prove to prove us to be the ones who are really fools. God, through his spirit, changes and transforms people. He removes the barriers that divide us, using ordinary people to accomplish his mission who have been changed, transformed. And out of those many transformations comes one people, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. United by one spirit to accomplish one purpose, to know him and to make him known. The question we must ask ourselves first is, do we know him? The second question, are we making him known in the world? Out of the many, we are one. 
That's part of the reason why we created this ministry, Apollos Watered. We want to help aid you in that mission. We believe that God, through the ordinary, does the extraordinary. Our goal is to resource our global village in which we find ourselves so that you might water your faith and then go water your world. That's why we're looking for authors, leaders, academics, and everyday believers to create content to help water the world for Jesus. If this is something that interests you, then we want to hear from you. Contact us at info at apolloswater.org, and we can send you more information. God's favor has been upon us in pretty incredible ways, and we're excited about this ministry, and we want to invite you to participate with us. If you'd like to help support this ministry, then I would invite you to go to our website at apolloswater.org, and at the top right hand of the page is a support us button where you can give at different levels. And that's it for today. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our Facebook pages or any of our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.